if you open your Bibles, our reading tonight is from Revelation 15.5 to the end of chapter 16. Um, if you have a church Bible, the passage is near the end um, on page 1036. So Revelation 15, starting at verse 5. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing that was died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds." The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Wonderful. Please grab your seats. And uh, as you do, uh, get your Bibles open to Revelation 15.5 and uh, to 16.21. It's on page 1036 of your church Bibles. And keep it open, and um, we'll be going through it. As per the sheet, uh, feel free to open your sheet, and you'll see um, our points there for this evening. 
You'll remember, for those of you who were here last week, um, that we looked at what the spiritual war for the Christian looked like in our physical, normal, everyday environments. Do you remember we said, what does battling the beast look like at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning, or, or 5 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, or 9 o'clock on a Friday evening? Where am I going to be facing the beast or the spirit of the age at those times and on those days? War, then, for the church is normal. That is what we are promised. Hardship should not take us by surprise. But real rest and peace is what the church is also promised for eternity in heaven, seated next to the Lamb. But as last week, we veered away from the cycles of seven, if you remember, that we've been looking at as we've been going through Revelation. Tonight, you notice, we'll go back to this cycle of seven. We've had the seven seals, where God's ordained history is is opened up by the Lamb. We've had the seven trumpets, which brought forth seven woes. That corresponds to what the world looks like, marred by sin, what the church is going to have to endure. And tonight we come to the seven bowls of God's judgment, or God's wrath. And the same rules apply. Remember, we are not looking at chronological history. We are looking at repeated cycles of the history of the age of the church between the two comings of Christ, between Christ's ascension and between Christ's coming again over and over and over again. And this cycle of seven introduces the fierce and very serious reality of God's judgment and wrath being poured out on the world. But before we get there, we start with a heavenly scene. And this is our first point of two tonight. The sanctuary of heaven is opened up. Now read with me again uh, Revelation chapter 15 verses 5 to 8. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, this is quite a dramatic scene, but it's also quite somber. There's deep sobriety here. And it's funny that we've come from sort of the celebration of the Lamb in in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 15, and we immediately go here. John is sort of moving the lens from the celebration at the end of time and back to where we are now, the age of the church and, and the judgment that the world is under. And I think the reason this next series of seven is sort of preempted by this beautiful picture of the 144,000 standing next to the sea in chapters, chapter 15, 1 to 4, singing the song of Moses, that victory scene, is because that is the scene that we need to keep in our heads right the way through to the end of Revelation. Because as we see here, the suffering that the Christian has to endure in this age between the two comings of Christ is great. Just as these bowls again show us. And we endure because we have the victory of the Lamb sharp in our sights. 
Now, as we've seen with um, symbology in Revelation, it's often taken from the Old Testament, and here is no different. To introduce these seven bowls, we have the view of what is obviously the temple. Now, when the temple was being erected under Moses' care in the wilderness, it was called, in Exodus 38, the temple of the testimony, or the tent of witness, as it's called here. And what is interesting to note is verse 8. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, it's true, isn't it, in the Old Testament that Moses or the priests, indeed anyone, could not enter the inner sanctuary that is the Holy of Holies, as that is where God resided and his glory filled the space. And here in Revelation, it is the same. The residence of God in heaven cannot be entered by anyone until God's judgment has been poured out. And the smoke of God's glory that fills the sanctuary here in this passage, again, is reminiscent of that big cloud of glory that filled the temple that we read in Exodus 40. And this is really helpful. This gives us a great insight into God's judgment or God's wrath. Because for some of us here, maybe tonight, especially if you're not a Christian, and and may I say thank you for coming, um, and please feel free to come up to me and ask me anything about tonight. And I know that you may be reading this thinking this is a very severe, brutal passage concerning a God of love. We read of harmful and painful sores being poured out over humanity, verse 2 of chapter 16. We see all the creatures in the sea dying. We see the sun frazzling people alive. How can God allow these bowls to be poured? Well, it is not because God is losing self-control. It's not because he's vindictive. It is because he is holy. It is because he is just and right. That is why these bowls are being poured from the temple. It is associating his wrath with his holiness with his goodness. Just as man could not enter the tabernacle because of God's holiness or the inner sanctuary, so man cannot enter this heavenly temple because of God's holy wrath. Can you see? God's wrath is inextricably linked with his holiness. So this is not the wrath of man being poured out, that meaningless, selfish hatred that we would show to one another indiscriminately and for no reason. Neither is it the wrath that the beast shows to the church, as we've seen. It is a controlled, well-warned-of act of holy justice, poured out from the sanctuary of the temple. That, as we read, look, in verse 6 of chapter 16, is what those who are against the church and Christ deserve. And herein lies a very important truth before we move on to looking at what these bowls of God's wrath contain. And that is that mankind is incredibly sinful and so is in direct conflict with the perfect God. And as we've seen already through our cycles of seven, the world is a suffering world. Revelation is written to a suffering church called to endure. Creation is creaking, we read. Mankind is at war. People are dying. And all this suffering is not due to God, but it's due to us. And as we read the last book in the canon of Scripture tonight, so we are reminded of what happened in the first. Man broke covenant with a holy God and ushered in a whole world of pain and death. Man decided to say, it's my way I'd rather live by, not the God of heaven and earth. 
we have decided to live in direct rebellion to the God of heaven. And that demands our death. Because God is a holy God. And being holy means he can have no association with anything bad at all. That means he can't have anything to do with me in my state. And as he allows us to go our own way, rejecting his rule, having warned us of the consequences of what would happen if we did that, so we take those consequences and so we live in a world of suffering under God's righteous judgment. The evil of the world and the consequences of our rebellious action does not and will not go unpunished. It makes sense, doesn't it, that the one who created everything, who does no wrong, and against whom great rebellion has been waged by the world is the one who has the last say. And it makes further sense that if God is holy and good, he must also be just. And for those who refuse to accept that he is God and continue to live in rebellion to him, they will rightly face his justice. And so his judgment and his wrath is not vindictive. It is, chapter 16, verse 6, well-deserved. But there's something else about the tabernacle that is really important to note before we move on. Because the tabernacle is also the sign of God's plan to rectify our broken relationship with him. The tabernacle was the way by which God lived with rebellious man, despite everything that we've done. God doesn't give up on us. And the tabernacle was a forerunner of what God would eventually do. Come as man in the form of God's son, Jesus Christ, to fully dwell or to tabernacle literally with us. So the message of forgiveness of sins could be taught and a death of sacrifice could be made so that men and women from across the ages could see their sin dealt with and throw themselves on the mercy of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've seen the the victory of the Lamb just before this temple scene, we see that God's plan through Jesus worked. And despite what we deserve as humans, there is a way in which we could be stood next to the Lamb who was slain. Christ has done everything to get us back into a right relationship with the Holy God. That's what the tabernacle was a forerunner of. And this is what is so important about this passage tonight, because the church is made up of people not who are in a higher spiritual plane and therefore spared God's wrath because we're brilliant. No. The church is made up of people who are fully aware of their sin, or we are fully acceptant of our hopeless state before this holy, powerful, and just God, and thereby fully dependent on him to save us. That is how the church gets to stand with Jesus, the Lamb, at the end of time. Not through our works, but through the blood of the Lamb. You see, the more incredible truth in the grand scheme of Scripture is not that there is judgment, but that there is grace and life. That there is way out of this judgment. And that is why the church is here to carry this incredible news to the ends of the earth, that it is found in the blood of the Lamb, the cross of Christ. But of course, as we read today, very soberly, the flip side of all this is that for those who continue in the world, despite the teaching, the preaching, the warning of the church, who choose to live against Christ and to shut out the testimony of the church, whether deliberately or not, despite everything God has done to win fallen humanity back, for those who ravage the church through corrupt government and through the spirit of the age, 
For all those who blaspheme God and willfully choose to remove him and his church from society, God's wrath will be poured out on them, and eventually justice will be faced. And in that light, that is why in the middle of the cycle of seven bowls of wrath, we read the angels saying in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 16 these words. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Those who face God's wrath, those who act in defiance of the Lamb, those who slay the church, those who follow the beast, these people are fully deserving of God's wrath. And the verdict on God's judgment comes back resoundingly from heaven, verse 7. Just and true are your judgments. To that end, let's move on to our second point of this evening, where we see the bowls of punishment themselves being poured out. Firstly, over creation. Bowls 1 to 4. Let's just read together again the first four bowls. Chapter 16, um, 1 to 8. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And then moving down to um, verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent or give him glory. Now, These four bowls, quite simply, signify God's wrath and judgment over creation. All these things are to do with creation. And if you notice, for those of you who have been following really well, these bowls mirror the seven trumpets that we read a few weeks ago pretty much exactly. Now, stick a body part in Revelation 16 and flip back to chapter 8. And uh, we're just going to have a little bit of a Bible study here. Chapter 8 is where we see the trumpets... Trumpet one, we see, affects the earth. Bowl one is poured out over the earth. Trumpet two, we see, affects the sea. Bowl two is poured out over the sea. Both have blood in them. Um, Trumpet three affects the rivers. Bowl three is poured out over the rivers and waters. And trumpet four affects the sun, as bowl four is poured out over the sun. So as the first four trumpets affect creation, so do the first four bowls. And so again, because these bowls reflect exactly the order of the trumpets, so this cycle of seven shows us that the whole of the age between the two comings of Christ feels like it mirrors the trumpets and their warning. That's the correct way to read this. However, there is a subtle difference. Note with the trumpets, only a third of things are affected. Go back to chapter 8, verse 7, a third of the world was burned up. In verse 8, only a third of the sea became blood. In verse 10, only a third of the rivers, and so on. The trumpets are, in other words, delivering suffering and judgment that is limited. We do not read that with the bowls. There seems to be no limitation placed on the judgment poured out from the bowls. So it seems that there is a slight escalation as to God's judgment here than what we see with the trumpets. 
And I think the reason for that is what we read in verse 1 of chapter 15, which is an introduction to the bulls that we've missed up until now. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. The bowls are different to the trumpets because the bowls are the last judgments by which God's wrath is finished. It is then these bowls that seem to usher in the end. But as much as this distinction seems to be quite clear, we do have to be careful Again, we're not reading chronological history. It could be that as we go through these spirals of history between the two comings of Christ, um, it does seem to show here that there may be a particularly harder period of judgment and suffering still to come, right at the end before the victory of Christ, where, as we see in verse 2 of chapter 16 especially, those who carry the mark of the beast are being picked out specifically for certain punishments. And that may well be true. However... As these last judgments mirror the trumpets exactly, then it's proper that we read them in the light of today. The last judgments of God will be mirrored throughout the whole of history because we are now in the last days. And this final judgment is real now. And judgment has been here since Christ descended and will continue to be until he returns. The earth is continually under God's final judgment and wrath. The church will always have to be up against the beast, always having to endure in a world that is fallen, broken, and suffering, waiting for the victory of the Lamb. And as another warning that we cannot read these bowls too much as a future event, it is what we read of verse 15 of chapter 16, the incredibly helpful words of Christ that bed the whole passage into our reality today as we read these words. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and exposed. In other words, I could come back today. If there was a warning for us not to take our foot off the gas, as it were, in the Christian life, if there was a warning for us not to look out for signs at the end and then make a decision, it is here. Assume he's coming back today. Don't try and predict what's going to happen. You're never going to know. Revelation does not tell us that. What we do know is that there will be a physical, actual day where Christ will return. And the truth is he will come like a thief. And thieves give no warning. And so we need to be ready. Not naked and exposed, but clothed and prepared. Not guessing and trying to predict, but living as if it is today. These final judgments of God are being mirrored in our experience now. And so just as we read these judgments of God, we see what they are judging and we don't read the bowls as future events or specific people or certain times or as atomic bombs or things like that, but as normal everyday suffering and judgment, not to be taken literally, they are symbolic. And as the first four bowls affect creation through sores on mankind, verse 2, death of living creatures, verse 3, the pollution of the sources of sustenance and water, verse 4, the punishment of the heat of the sun, so that is what our experience is now in a fallen, broken, terrible, difficult, violent creation. It is not what it was meant to be. 
But just as God's final judgments affect creation, so we move on. God's final judgment will be poured out over Satan, bowl five. Read with me 16 verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Again, this is a future reality and a present one. Satan will eventually be darkened once and for all, but even now in the age of the church, he is being vanquished on a daily basis. Through the testimony of the church, through the gospel that we speak out against him, as we saw in Revelation 14 last week, and through the blood of the Lamb, The kingdom of the beast mentioned in this bowl is, remember, the world powers that are all opposed to God. And these powers are fighting a losing battle. They will be darkened once and for all. Note as well the cursing of God by the people who follow the beast and the kingdom of the beast. And the repeated refrain in verses 9 and 11, they did not repent, they did not repent. It seems that right up until the last day, people will refuse to bow the knee before the throne of God. And that is desperately sad. And that is absolutely what we see today. People who curse God to his face and will refuse to repent. But then we move on quickly to the last two bowls. As God's wrath is poured out finally over humanity and all earthly powers, bowls six to seven. And here we finally get to Armageddon. Now, there's a lot going on here, and there is a lot of rubbish that is spoken about Armageddon. One of the most misunderstood words in Scripture, I think. But actually what's going on in verses 12 to 16 is quite simple. Um, Keep them open as I sort of talk through this part of the passage. We see the sixth angel pouring his bowl out over the river Euphrates, and it dries up, preparing the way for the kings from the east. In the Old Testament, the east was always where the baddies came from to attack Israel. Assyria was to the east. Babylon was to the east. The east became a euphemism, if you like, for Israel's enemies and and her future pain. So the kings of the east represent the enemies of God and the church. And with the drying up of the Euphrates, you kind of have a defenseless border between the East and Israel. They are free to roam against the church. And then out of the dragon, Satan and his angels, the first beast and his false prophet, you'll remember that's the second beast from chapter 13, out of their mouths come these three unclean spirits that resemble frogs. Now, frogs are symbols of evil. And as a a sidebar at this point, I don't know how many of you noticed just how like the plagues of Egypt these plagues are. Um, We've got bowl one, sores. Bowl two and three is blood in the water. Bowl five is darkness. Bowl seven is hailstones, as we'll see later. And bowl six introduces the idea of the frog, frog frog-like spirits. And with that Old Testament understanding, it would have been immediately taken that these spirits were representing evil. And these frog-like spirits will go to all the kings of the world and will prepare them for battle against God the Almighty and against his church as they rally their troops and assemble them at Armageddon. Now, Armageddon literally means the Mount of Megiddo, and Megiddo is a real place, and it's apparently an incredibly unassuming place. It is a small, fortified hill that overlooks the Jezreel Valley in Israel. You can go and see it. But it was of great significance for Israel. There were many notable battles fought and won there. So that's why it is used. It was recognized as a place of war. But here's where we've got to be careful. 
As many people have tried to tie this down to a specific battle that will happen in the future at, a, at that specific place, we've got to remind ourselves that this is not the case. Anti-church governments will not necessarily roll their tanks onto that tiny hill and take the Christian church in a ground war. That's not necessarily what Revelation is talking about. Once again, Armageddon is symbolic. And whatever this looks like, whether on earth in some way in the future, in a particularly intense period of persecution for the church, or spiritually in heaven, we don't know. But what it does tell us is that there is a final showdown between God and Satan. And again, we see the shadows of this battle raging now in our age. And so the resounding bell from chapters 12 to 15 ring out again. The church is at war. And the church has always been at war, and it will continue to be at war until Christ finally returns. And what Armageddon shows us here is not that there will necessarily be a specific battle on earth, but that there will be a final battle. There will be a time, in other words, where war will come to an end. And that brings us to bowl seven. Because here we read the outcome of Armageddon, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Now, what does that cry remind us of? It is finished. Said not from a temple, but from a cross. It is the same victory cry. And herein lies the key to the entire passage. Because as much as the church is at war with Satan, the thread that runs through the age of the church is the fact that Jesus has already won and that he will win again. And as the temple starts this passage, so the cry of the cross finishes it. As much as Satan is vanquished at the cross, and at the same time the age of the church is set into motion with the words, it is finished, so Satan is finally vanquished, signified symbolically by the battle of Armageddon. And the age of the church comes to a close with the words, it is done. You see, as we've been going around these cycles of seven, looking at the war the church is facing, look at the judgment that the world is facing, and looking at the suffering that creation is facing, the thing that runs through each cycle is that there will be an end to it all. And that the end will only ever be a resounding victory for the Lamb. The same cry that defeats Satan on the cross is the same cry that defeats Satan at the last. And note as we go through this last little bit how the activity of 17 to 21 mimics what happens at the cross in Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, we see that there's an earthquake recorded at Christ's death. So here there is an earthquake, a symbolic earthquake to represent that same kind of Christ-like victory. And just in Matthew 7, 27, we see rocks splitting apart. Here we see the city splitting apart. As we see Babylon falling, that great representative city of all the earthly, worldly powers that are against Christ and the church. It will drink the cup of God's wrath. But, just as in Matthew 27 where we read the centurion looking at the furore around him and in the face of his king above him and says, surely this man is the son of God. 
on the last day of earth, the wicked will look at the furore around them and in the face of their conquering king will curse him. And as the passage ends on that note, that has to be our take-home point. Are you for King Jesus or are you against him? This is a serious, deadly serious warning. If you're not a Christian here tonight, this may be heavy reading. But as we've seen, this good and just God has done everything to get you right with him. He is ready this very moment to take you onto his side and to stand you next to him, safe and promised eternal rest. All you need to do tonight is to acknowledge your sin and ask for forgiveness. Do not dismiss Jesus out of hand. You have too much to lose. You stand against a holy God who will not be trifled with. But the most incredible thing here is that there is a temple and that there is a cross. He provided a way for us to know him, even though we are wretched creatures. And for those of us who are Christians, the warning is to stand firm. Do not take the easy route. If your life is is too easy and too comfortable, then be warned because you are in a war and it should be tough and it will be tough. We as a church know in very particular ways what this war looks and feels like. Many of you have been around Chalmers much longer than I have and you have had a good war and you are tired. Some of us are so tired. But you do not give in. The decisions you have made as part of this church, which were made knowing would cause pain and struggle, but were made knowing that it was the right thing to do before Jesus Christ, that's the path we keep choosing. To not give in to the beast. To not give in to the easy life. But to give in to the way of painful victory. For those of us in lecture halls and school playgrounds and offices and hospitals and parliaments and charities, for all of us at 10 o'clock this Monday morning, 5 o'clock this Thursday afternoon, 9 o'clock this Friday evening, don't give in. We take each moment of each day as we roll with the punches of a creation that is steeped in suffering and a world under God's judgment with that victory scene of 15, 1 to 5 in our minds. And with the truth of the cross seared into our consciences, as we long for the day where Christ will say, it is done. There is no more suffering. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter my rest. We buried Sinclair Graham on Friday, one of our elders, a man who fought a good, long, hard war. And he now understands fully what that rest feels like. Not only is there warning here, but there is incredible hope. Hope for that rest and hope especially for the persecuted church where the people, governments, organizations who smash the church and bring great suffering to Christians because of their testimony will be dealt with and justice will be served. Ultimately, however, for both the Christian and the non-Christian, we are called to be prepared Because at some point it will be too late to choose sides in this war. Christ will return 
and we will be judged according to whether we accepted him as king or not. And tonight, you have a chance to make that decision. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and seen exposed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you for um, your words to us. Thank you for revelation. Lord, it is um, severe and it is true. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a just, good God who is not vindictive, but who is truly holy and right in all of your judgments. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we read this, uh, we would be um, aware of our sin and thankful of your forgiveness. But also I pray that we would be, as Christians, wanting to throw ourselves onto Jesus Christ the victor as we go out from this place and face the world and the battle that we are in. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us real resolve. May we not give in. Lord, may we constantly be dependent on the Lamb. Heavenly Father, we pray for those who we know and love who don't know you. Lord, we pray that they would turn from the side of failure to the side of holy, 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 and that they would bow the knee before the throne, and that they would be seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord God, we thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for the goodness of your mercy. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your love. And thank you for the victory that you give to the church. Amidst our real tiredness and pain, we thank you that you will sort out suffering once and for all. Lord God, we praise you. We give you thanks in your mighty name. Amen.